alguém The Circular Saw I had four grandchildren at the time, but it had been years since any of them had come to stay. It wasn't that my daughters didn't trust me, it was just that they'd done well for themselves. They'd got themselves good jobs, married into nice families, and I'd got sort of left behind. It was always the other grandparents who would look after the kids, whisk them off on mini-breaks or trips to the theatre or visits to their second homes. And so, although those four little faces watched over me every day from their perch on my mantelpiece, I doubt I would recognise a single one if I passed them in the street. And then, one Sunday evening, completely out of the blue, Pip called to ask if I could have Damon the following weekend. She launched off on a long explanation as to why. It had something to do with work, but I wasn't listening. I was just so pleased. I was absolutely thrilled. She warned me he could be a handful, a bit volatile, that's the way she put it. It's almost as if there's something of his grandfather in him, she said, just to underline the point. Something of his grandfather. Now that was a phrase that could cover a multitude of sins, but I took it to mean he was lively, spirited, had a bit of devil in him but I didn't mind that, and anyway, it was only for a night. I got Pip to tell me what he liked to eat and resolved to work out how to get the football on the telly. I also decided to get the spare room done up. At that age, he might not appreciate it. He was only eleven, but it was way overdue. No one had slept in there in ages. The window sill was damp and rotten, the wallpaper was faded and curling away at the top, and there were patches of mildew all over. Although it was short notice, I found a local firm who could get it done by the end of the week, Turner and Son. They came first thing Wednesday morning, or rather one of them did, a cheerful young fellow who introduced himself as Aaron. He looked like a fairly typical workman, bleached hair shaved at the sides, sleeve tattoos down to the wrists, but there was something reassuring about his manner, something proprietorial that made me assume he was the son on the side of the van. We'll just be setting up and prepping today, he told me with a grin as he started to heave his equipment up the stairs. We might get the walls stripped, but probably not much more than that. He could see the look on my face and so he added, But it'll all be done by the end of Friday. And he gave me a wink. I promise you, Maggie, scout's honour. I had no idea so many tools would be needed just to spruce up a bedroom. There were ladders and dust sheets, holdalls full of chisels and scrapers, a circular saw with its own workbench, electric drills, electric sanders, pots of primer, pots of paint, and God knows what else. So, is it just you then? I asked as he made his way upstairs for the umpteenth time. Yeah, mostly me. Me colleague may be along a bit later. It depends how he gets on with the other job. I didn't like the sound of that. I'd heard plenty of tales of building firms who juggled more jobs than they could handle and never finished any on time. But I'd give him the benefit of the doubt for now. I'll leave you to it, I shouted up the stairs. I've got to pop out for a while. Help yourself to tea in the kitchen. I couldn't have been out much more than an hour, but when I got back, his van was already gone. It wasn't a good sign, and as I walked up the front path, I was making up my mind to call and let him know I was on his case. Then suddenly, I stopped and listened. Someone was playing my piano, and it didn't take me more than four notes to realise exactly who that someone was. 
It was Julian, wasn't it? Blundering his way through the maple leaf rag. I'd heard him play it, or attempt to play it, so many times I could predict exactly when he was going to come unstuck. And sure enough, he did. God, how I hated that tune. Julian, I should explain, is my ex-husband, and he was just as unwelcome in my home at that moment as he had been when he left me over twenty years before. I let myself in, then stood in the hall and watched through the living room doorway. He had a showy way of playing, just as he had a showy way about every stupid thing he ever did. There he was, tossing his head back and forth to the tune, fluttering his fingers ostentatiously over the treble notes, banging out the bass with his left hand in an absurd display of machismo. As a young man with a floppy fringe, he might have got away with it, but not any more. Oh, he obviously still thought he was something rather special, but not to me he wasn't. No. He was just another boring, balding, pot-bellied, bigoted old fool. That's what I told myself. I cleared my throat to let him know I was there, but to no effect. I tried again, but once more he was oblivious. How did you get in? I said at last. Door was open, he barked in a matter-of-fact way without looking up. He played on for a few bars, then stopped suddenly mid-phrase and slammed the fallboard down. So, he said, addressing the front of the piano, I hear our grandson is coming to stay. He had me flustered straight away, just as he always used to. Yes, I said, immediately aware of the storm to come. He's just here for the weekend. And why didn't you tell me? Well, I didn't know. Philippa only called on Sunday. And you were going to keep it a secret? No, like I said, he spun round on the piano stool. He is my grandson too, you know. Yes, I know. And you didn't think I had a right to know? I... Uh, I wasn't sure how to handle this. So, he continued, that's why you're getting the spare room done up, is it? What do you mean? I mean, that's why it's full of tools. I was shocked. Julian, have you been poking around upstairs? He ignored the question. It's about bloody time it was done. You've let this place go to rack and ruin. Do you know that? He got up and made a tour of the room, like he was a landlord inspecting a student flat. Julian, I said, what do you think you're doing? To tell the truth, I was a bit embarrassed. I'd left my plate from last night's dinner on the table with a heap of washing next to it. There was a stack of old newspapers on a chair, a couple of coffee cups and a wine glass on top of the telly. Of course, it was nothing to be ashamed of, but it all added to the general impression... You know, the impression that the cottage was a bit neglected, getting a bit shabby, and it certainly needed a lick of paint, new carpets, a new kitchen, I wouldn't deny that. But then again, we all know why it had got like that, don't we? If someone hadn't walked out and left me with three small daughters, if someone had kept up their maintenance payments, if a certain person hadn't pulled a fast one in the divorce court, then there would have been a bit more money to keep up appearances. Damn him! My mind was suddenly fuming with resentments, seething with far too many accusations and recriminations to pour out all at once. I watched bitterly as he stopped in the corner by the window and shook his head. He nodded up to where the wall had blistered from the damp and the cornice had started to come away. Look at the fucking state of that, he said. Julian, 
Will you please mind your language? Oh, and since when did you become so respectable? He jeered. I just don't want you swearing in front of Damon, that's all. In my muddled way, I felt saying that would put me at some kind of advantage, you know, give me the moral high ground. Of course, I couldn't have been more wrong. Julian could barely suppress a smirk as he turned and said, Oh, come on, Maggie, come on, I'm not going to swear in front of Damon. And in that moment, his tone changed completely. All of a sudden, he was charm and reason itself. And I knew why straight away, because I'd just given him exactly what he'd come for, hadn't I? Served it to him on a plate. It had never entered my mind that he would be a part of my weekend with Damon. But there'd be no keeping him away now, would there? It was as if I'd just handed him a written invitation. Christ, how could I be so stupid? Okay, he said, and he dropped his voice a couple of notes, which was always a bad sign. I've been giving this some thought, and it seems to me that this is a chance to remind young Damon of the stock he comes from. Oh, God, I thought, not this again. One of the many repellent things about Julian was that he was a complete and utter snob. He droned on for quite a while and then said, Wouldn't you agree, Maggie? I think I made some kind of noise in response, but I hadn't been paying any attention. That was partly because I had no interest in what he was saying, but it wasn't entirely that. You see, while he was talking, a face had appeared at the window behind him. It was a rough-looking old man in a mud-streaked tweed cap with stubbly cheeks and slightly bulbous brown eyes. I was quite taken aback for a moment, and then it occurred to me that this must be the colleague Aaron had mentioned. But why on earth was he staring through the window like that? And he really was staring, glaring more like, glaring at the back of Julian's head. Excuse me, said Julian, and I realised he was waving his hand in front of my face. Maggie, excuse me, you're not listening to a word I'm saying, are you? I switched my attention back to him. Did you hear what I just said? He asked. I said yes, although of course I hadn't. So what was it then? I didn't have a clue. I opened my mouth and then shrugged and looked down. Oh, for God's sake, Maggie. He rolled his eyes. Can't you concentrate on anything for more than two seconds? You're still as bloody scatty as you always were. Look, perhaps it's best if I come back tomorrow and we can have a proper chat then. It was the last thing I wanted, but I couldn't see a way to stop it. I'll come for coffee at eleven and we can make a plan, one that works for all of us, he said magnanimously. Me, you, and Damon, eleven o'clock. Now, is that all right for you? I nodded glumly. When the door had closed behind him, I slumped in the armchair. I should have known Julian would find out. I should have known it. I should have made a plan, but I hadn't. And now I would just have to put up with it, wouldn't I? I closed my eyes and tried to relax. I could feel a headache gathering. I don't know how much time passed, but I awoke to the sound of the front door clicking open. God, not Julian back, I thought. But it wasn't. It was the old man whose face I'd seen at the window. He walked stiffly into the room without appearing to register my presence. He was wearing a long, heavy tweed overcoat and old-fashioned work boots with a flash of steel at each toe cap where the leather had torn. 
You must be Aaron's colleague, I said. He turned his bulbous eyes on me and I realised they still seemed to be glaring with a strange, steady intensity. Perhaps he had one of those conditions. Was it thyroid or something? Are you looking for the loo? I asked, helpfully. It's just upstairs, first on the left. He rocked his head slightly in a way that seemed to mean neither yes or no and then stomped across the room towards the staircase. I felt myself shudder as he went past me. There was a smell about him, something halfway rotten like cold, damp earth. He certainly wasn't the kind of man I wanted in my home. Still, it was only for a few days, and if it meant they got the job done on time, it would have been worth it. I must have fallen asleep again because I didn't hear him leave, and you can be sure I checked every room in the cottage before I shot the bolts and settled down with a mushroom stir-fry in front of the telly. I slept terribly that night. The thought of having Julian involved in my life in any way at all was, frankly, appalling. Obviously, I knew he was still somewhere in the town, shacked up with one of the succession of women he had duped into living with him. But for the last five years, maybe more, I had managed to avoid him. I'd seen him at a distance, on the high street, in the park. I'd glimpsed him a couple of times at the other end of the aisle in Tesco. But on the whole, I'd managed to block him from my thoughts. And now, after all that good work, after all that effort, now this... It wasn't just the shock of finding him in my living room. Even worse was the idea he had already managed to insinuate himself into my precious, precious weekend with my grandson. And of course I knew exactly what he was going to do. He would suggest that he take Damon sailing, wouldn't he? Because Damon, of course, would love to learn to sail, or so Julian would claim. And he would turn up absurdly early because of the tides or the winds or whatever the excuse would be. And then he would deliver him back three hours late, wet and exhausted with some other lame excuse. And all that would be left for me to do would be to feed Damon some soup and tuck him into bed. Then he'd wake up late and before you know it his mother would be there to pick him up and he'd be gone. Great. I lay on my back in the dark and stared at the ceiling. I needed a plan, but I couldn't think of one. I had no energy, no resources left for this type of thing. I had been defeated many, many years ago, and I suppose defeated I would stay. And then I became aware of a noise. Somewhere in the next room, the spare room. It was just a low hum at first, but then it rose in pitch and became harsher and louder, turning into a persistent whine. I pushed the duvet back and swung my feet onto the floor. Hello, I called. Almost immediately, the whine started to fade in intensity. I sat and listened for a moment. It was reducing now to the hum I had heard originally, but what on earth was going on? Could I hear anything else? I listened for another few moments. I couldn't, but I would have to check this out. I pulled on my dressing gown and padded out onto the landing and then very, very cautiously opened the door to the spare room. Aaron had taken the curtains down and I was immediately struck by the strange quality of the light. The bags and boxes of tools by the window were tinged with an orange glow from the street lamp outside while the paint pots and workbench against the back wall were lit by the cold, white light of the moon. And then I noticed something moving. 
there was a silver crescent sticking up through the centre of the workbench, which I realised must be the circular saw I had seen him carrying that morning, and it seemed to me that the blade was spinning. I took another couple of steps into the room so I could get a better look, and it was spinning, it definitely was, although it was slowing down. I watched it for a few moments, it was kind of hypnotic, and as it slowed, every one of its evil little teeth started coming into focus. Eventually, it gave a tiny little rock one way, then a little nudge the other, before coming to a complete halt. I didn't like to get too close. I just stood there for a few seconds to check it wouldn't suddenly spring back to life. And when I was satisfied it wasn't going to, I shuffled back to my own room and resumed my fitful, fretful attempt at sleep. I was up and dressed before Aaron arrived next morning, but only just. Morning, Maggie, he said cheerily. Early start today, there's a lot to do. I put the kettle on for him while he carried a few more tools upstairs, and when I handed him his tea, I asked, Aaron, is there any way that any of your tools could switch themselves on? You know, are some of them on timers or something like that? He looked at me as if I was completely mad. Are any of my tools on timers? My power tools, you mean? Well, what I mean is... Is there any way they could, you know, just start up? He threw his head back and laughed. Maggie, come on. We are very strict on safety, I can assure you. I know some small firms don't bother, but we take this kind of thing very seriously. And I believed him because he was suddenly in deadly earnest. Oh, we know what can go wrong, he continued. And it's not nice when it does. Yes, I'm sure, I nodded feeling more stupid by the minute. And I don't know if I said this yesterday, but I don't want you going into that room, Maggie, not with all that equipment in there, not under any circumstances. No, of course not. He had already started to climb the stairs when I remembered something else. Oh, Aaron, just one more thing. Will your colleague be coming again today? He turned and peered over the banister at me. Colleague? he asked, looking puzzled. You know, yesterday you said, Oh, yes, I remember. I think he'll be working on the other job again, but I suppose it might be over later. You never know. We'll see how we get on. He winked and headed up the stairs again. But don't worry, Maggie, he called from the landing. We'll be all done by the weekend, I guarantee it. I pottered round for a while, sorting out the kitchen, getting myself breakfast, trying to delay the moment when I would have to start thinking about what to say to Julian. I needed a plan, I knew I did. But for now, perhaps, I would listen to a few minutes of Radio 2. Aaron hadn't been at work for much more than an hour when I heard him come down the stairs again. I intercepted him in the hall before he could make it out to the front door. Are you off so soon? I asked, as sternly as I could manage. I just need another tool, he said. Haven't you got enough already? Ah, but the right tool will save more time than the fetching of it. That's something I've learnt, Maggie. And then to change the subject, he took a step to the doormat and picked up the post. I think these must be for you. Three for Maggie Coverley, ooh, and one for Mrs. Margaret Alfiji. Not Alfiji, it's Alfidge. It was my married name. I haven't used it for years, but I suppose some people still have it on their records. 
He nodded a couple of times and looked strangely thoughtful for a moment. Anyway, he said, I won't be long. And he slipped out the door. Julian turned up about twenty minutes later, more than half an hour before I was expecting him. That was typical, though. He'd do it to wrong foot me, catch me unawares. And of course he succeeded. I hadn't done my makeup, I had my hands in the sink, and I still hadn't begun to think of a plan for dealing with him. He stood on the front doorstep in pressed chinos and blazer, radiating polite concern and utter respectability. I hope I haven't surprised you, he said, lying through his teeth. I showed him in and sat him on the sofa while I went through to the kitchen to pull myself together. I've been thinking, he said as soon as I set foot in the room again. I've been thinking about what to do with Damon this weekend. Oh, yes, I said, knowing what was to come. Yes, I thought I might take him sailing. No, Julian. I could come and pick him up at, say, midday and bring him back in time for tea. No, Julian. It's not the kind of thing he'd get the chance to do up in London. I think it would be good for him, don't you? He is ten years old, after all. He's eleven, actually. There you are. Even better. So that's settled, then. No, Julian. It's not settled. He got up in an attempt to shut down the discussion, and as he did so, he caught a glimpse of Aaron's van pulling up on the gravel outside. He went over to the window for a closer look and suddenly stiffened. What are these people doing here? It's only Aaron, I said. Turner and son, what the hell are they doing here? They're doing up the room for Damon. What? he yelled. Why the hell did you ask Turners to do it? Well, they're local and they said they could do it quickly, I said weakly. Oh, really? Yes, and he's ever so nice. Aaron, I mean, I can introduce you if you like. Oh, can you really? There was real venom in his words now, just like there always used to be. Do you know something? I'm wise to your tricks, Maggie. Outside, we could hear Aaron slam the back door of the van. I'll let myself out the back way, said Julian. You fucking idiot. And with that, he headed out through the kitchen. I have to say I felt rather pleased. I mean, I was startled by the violence of Julian's reaction, of course I was, but it was immensely satisfying to see him so disconcerted. Exhilarating, even. But I couldn't for the life of me think what had caused it. I chewed it over in my mind for a while, but couldn't come up with anything, and so I made myself a bit of lunch and slumped into my armchair for a postprandial doze. I was woken by the sound of someone in the kitchen. Aaron, I called. Is that you? When I got no reply, I got up and went to see. And there, with his back to me, was the same figure of a man in a grimy tweed cap, long coat and muddy boots that I had encountered the day before. Mr. Turner, I said, because I assumed that's who he was, is everything all right? He turned to me and I could see he was fumbling, trying to get a tea bag out of the caddy. He seemed more stooped than yesterday, and if anything, slightly dirtier and even rougher looking. Shall I help you with that? I asked, and as I pointed to the caddy, I realised the cause of his clumsiness. The first two fingers of his right hand were missing. 
I didn't like to stare, but I couldn't take my eyes off them. Those two shiny, white, severed stumps. Let me take that, I said, and nodded to the caddy, but he wouldn't give it up. He held the caddy in his good hand and laid his wounded one on mine. I tried not to shrink back. It felt more like a hoof than a hand. It felt hard, cold, calloused, inert. He tried to clear his throat with a rackety gurgle, and I instinctively twisted my head from the rich, pungent, ordurous smell of his breath. You must be... You must be Maggie. I felt his red-rimmed, bulbous eyes upon me, and something icy rippled through me. I shuddered as I had the day before, and pulled my hand away. The disturbance of the previous night, the events of the day, they must have taken it out of me, because I went to sleep almost as soon as my head touched the pillow. Not that it did me much good. When I woke at around four in the morning, it was with a head full of anxieties. Pip had called in the evening to warn that Damon had got himself into some kind of scrape at school and had come home with a split lip. Boys will be boys, I said feebly. Yes, and this one is a bit accident-prone, said Pip. It occurred to me that I should mention Julian and his sailing trip, but then I thought better of it. But I did need to find a way to stop it happening. I really did need a plan, but what? Perhaps if I sat Damon down the moment he arrived and had a talk with him, I could somehow set his mind against it. Or perhaps I could get him out of the house before Julian arrived and take him shopping. Or better, perhaps to an adventure park or something like that. Those were the kind of thoughts I was turning over as I lay there in the darkness. And there was a noise in the next room. I sat up straight, my heart pounding. It was the hum I'd heard the previous night. Just as before, it rose in frequency and kept on rising and rising until it was a piercing, screaming, high-pitched whine. There was nothing else for it. I would have to go and see what was happening. I went out onto the landing, took several deep breaths and pushed open the door to the spare room. The whine was suddenly so intense it set my teeth on edge. The saw blade was spinning at a tremendous speed, throwing little sparkles of reflected moonlight onto the walls and dust sheets all around. The noise was so maddening that I had to put my hands over my ears as I picked my way through the tools and offcuts to the socket on the far side where I guessed it would be plugged in. I found the switch and click! The wine started to drop. I took a couple of steps back and then suddenly, click! The hateful thing switched itself back on. The wine started to rise, if anything, to an even higher pitch than before. I lunged for the power socket and switched it off again. Almost immediately, click, it came back on. I could feel myself getting angry now. I switched it off, it came back on, off, on, off, on. Damn it! I wrenched the plug out of the wall and at last the wine began to drop and the saw began to slow. When it finally came to a halt, I must have stood and watched it for a good ten minutes just to make sure, just to make absolutely sure. I would have to speak to Aaron about this. I would really have to speak to him tomorrow. But Aaron didn't turn up until after half past nine the next day, and as soon as he got out of his van I could see that something had changed. 
There was a grim look on his face. His jaw was set, and when he came through the front door, there was no cheery good morning. Instead, he stomped straight upstairs. I went out into the hallway and called up to him. Aaron, can I talk to you for a moment? He came downstairs carrying a bag of tools in either hand. What are you doing, Aaron? I asked. I'm packing up, aren't I? What do you mean? I asked as he pushed past me towards the front door. Aaron, what do you mean? I mean, that's it. We're not working here anymore. He was at the rear of his van now, stowing the bags in the back. I had no idea what he was talking about. But you haven't finished, I called to him. No, and we're not going to either. You can sort it out yourself. But Aaron, if it's about the money, forget it, he said, as he turned and marched back towards me. I wouldn't take your stinking money off you if you offered me a million pounds for the job. But... Aaron, what's happened? He was a big man, and he loomed over me now as I stood on the front doorstep. What did you think you were doing, hiring us? Are you completely insane? But I don't know what you mean. Of course you do, he said, and he pushed past me again into the house and up the stairs. I was baffled. I could think of nothing, absolutely nothing, that could have provoked such an extraordinary change in him. And I needed to get to the bottom of it, because, come what may, that room had to be ready by the end of the day. Aaron was up there quite a while, and so I took the time to compose myself. And when at last I heard him coming out, I stood at the bottom of the stairs with my arms folded to bar his way. Aaron, I said, I promise you, I have absolutely no idea what has happened. Can you please, please tell me so we can just straighten this out? I could tell he didn't believe me, but he put his tools down. Well, I said. All right. Well, I went to see my mum last night. She's in an old people's home up in Wolverton. She had a stroke a few years back. She's in quite a bad way, you know. She's not really all there, but I wanted to ask her something. Oh, yes. I said. I still had no idea where this was heading. You see, when you told me your husband's name, ex-husband, ex-husband, whatever, when you told me his name, it rang a bell somewhere. I wanted to see if my mum would recognise it. I don't normally go on a Thursday, so she was already asleep when I arrived. I went into her room and sat by her bed for a while until she stirred and sort of smiled at me. Then I said to her, Mum, do you remember the name Alfidge? She was dozy, so I had to repeat it. Alfidge, I said. Do you remember the name Alfidge? And suddenly her eyes were wide open and she grabbed my hand and she held it so hard I could feel her nails digging in. It was him, wasn't it? And she looked at me, and I haven't heard her say a single proper sentence in the last three years, but she looked at me and she whispered, Yes, it was him. There was a crack in his voice as he said it, and I realised that his eyes had filled with tears. He looked down to hide his embarrassment, picked up his tools and blundered blindly through the front door. I followed him outside. I'm sorry, Aaron, please, can you just tell me what happened? 
Are you saying you really don't know? I wouldn't be asking if I did, would I? All right. Let me jog your memory. It was 1997. 23 years ago. I was four at the time. Does that year mean anything to you? Okay, I groped around in my memory. So 1997 would have been when Alice, my third, was born. And that would have been when I moved in here to the cottage. And of course, that was also the year that Julian left me. I don't know all the details, Aaron continued, but I guess you must have just bought this place. It was probably a bit of a wreck and your ex-husband hired my dad to do it up. This all made sense. I remembered that we were renting a flat in London while I was pregnant with Alice. And Julian spent a huge amount of time driving down here to check up on the building work. Go on, I said to Aaron. Well, I can't tell you exactly what happened. We've never known for sure. But I've always imagined there was some kind of disagreement between your husband and my dad. Apparently they were always arguing about plans or deadlines or materials or money or what have you. But we know something bad happened. They started pushing each other. Or maybe there was some kind of fight. Anyway, somehow or other, my dad fell across the saw bench while the saw was running. He put his hand out to save himself and it ripped through the first two fingers of his right hand, severed them both completely just below the knuckle. Good God. Like I say, we don't know the details. We never got it to court, but your husband was definitely to blame. We all know that. Have you... have you never spoken to your dad about it then? Well, of course not, he said, and looked at me as though I was soft in the head. I was four years old, and he died of septicemia two weeks later. I was still in pieces when Pip arrived with Damon the following morning. I hadn't slept, I hadn't washed, I could barely control my shaking. I was everything I'd hoped not to be. I had made no preparations, absolutely none. I'd bought no food, I hadn't tidied up. And Aaron had left without clearing the rest of his tools from the spare room, so I had no idea where Damon was going to sleep. Thankfully, Pip was in such a rush that she didn't stop for coffee. In fact, she barely acknowledged me. She pushed Damon through the door, kissed the top of his head, and then roared away in her fancy four-by-four. And so there I was, just me and my longed-for grandson, looking at each other warily. You know what it's like when you carry someone in your mind for a long time. They're never quite what you expect. And that's what it was like with Damon. He was smaller than I'd imagined and solemn-looking too, which took me quite by surprise. Anyway, this was still my big chance. I needed to pull myself together and make the best of it. Have you had breakfast? I asked him. He nodded sullenly. And how's your lip? I asked, staring at the ugly swollen gash. Mummy said you had an accident. It's all right. That's good, I said cheerily. So what shall we do today then? Would you like to go shopping? His face fell. I don't really like shopping. Or what about an adventure park, one with climbing and ladders and ropes and things? I went to one of those last weekend. Oh, I see. Then, suddenly brightening, he asked, Can I plug in my PlayStation somewhere? 
I took him through to the living room and watched as he connected his devices to the telly. You can watch football later, if you like, I said. I'm not really a fan, he said, firing up his game. Oh, God, this was going so much worse than I'd feared, and I'd made absolutely no progress whatsoever in turning him against the sailing trip. I had to do something about that before Julian came through the door. The trouble was, he arrived just a few minutes later, more than an hour earlier than he said he would. And where's my grandson? he asked as he stepped into the hall. Leave him be, I said. He's perfectly happy playing a game in the next room. And I ushered him into the kitchen. Now, perhaps you can explain why on earth you've come so early. It's the tides, I'm afraid. If we're not out on the water by eleven o'clock, there'll be no point. Oh, Julian, for goodness sake, and when are you going to bring him back? He'll be back by 3.30, I promise. You? Promise? And when was the last time you made a promise you didn't break? And what is that supposed to mean? There was now that familiar, jaw-jutting, nasty look about him. I said, what is that supposed to mean? he repeated. It means, I said, and for some reason the lack of sleep had left me feeling braver than I'd ever felt before. It means you've never given me any grounds to trust you about anything in all the many, many years I've known you. He just laughed. And what about you, Maggie? What about you? Mrs. Trustworthy, are you all of a sudden? Mrs. Reliable, just because one of your daughters asked you to look after her son for the night. But as a last resort, may I add, for the first time in eleven years, as an ultimate last resort. Have you ever thought why it's never happened before, Maggie? Well, have you? You bastard, I said. Ooh, Maggie, mind your language. We wouldn't want Damon to pick up any rude words now, would we? I was so angry I couldn't think, I couldn't reason. I wanted to flail my fists at him, hurt him, do him damage. And then I heard the hum, the rising hum from upstairs. Oh my God, I said, where's Damon? I ran into the living room, but he wasn't there. Julian, I shouted, Julian, I think Damon's in danger. I think he's gone upstairs. Please, Julian, please, can you find him? This is really, really important. And he must have heard in my tone that it really was, because for once in his life he actually did as he was asked. He rushed into the hallway and took the stairs two at a time. The note of the saw was rising, still rising. I paced up and down the kitchen, paused and put the palms of my hands to my forehead. I could picture the blade spinning, spinning at a tremendous speed. What was going on? What the hell was going on? It had risen still further to a hideous rasping whine when the door clicked open and Damon slunk into the room. Oh my God, Damon, where have you been? I just went out into the garden, that's all, he said defensively. There was an old man looking through the window. I thought it might be Grandpa. Grandpa? What did he look like? I don't know, like a grandpa, you know, old, kind of dirty looking. Was he wearing a cap? Yes, yeah, I think he was, and his eyes were funny, sort of big and staring. That wasn't your grandpa, I told him. No, he said, I didn't really think it was. 
The saw upstairs was screaming now, really screaming in a way I had never heard before. Granny, said Damon, I don't know why, but I'm scared. Something's happening and I don't like it. I know, I said, but it's all right. We'll be okay, you and I. And I said it because somehow I knew it to be perfectly true. Because whatever was happening upstairs had nothing to do with the two of us. It belonged to other lives and other times. Julian was found dead in a field about half a mile away, around three o'clock that afternoon. A neighbour said she had seen him running in that direction like a man possessed, jumping ditches, throwing himself over fences. The coroner later confirmed that he had suffered a massive heart attack. The funeral was delayed by a couple of weeks while the authorities sorted out the paperwork, but when it finally took place, there was a surprisingly good turnout. The car park was full and there was quite a crowd waiting on the steps of the crematorium. A middle-aged woman tapped me on the arm as we made our way into the chapel. I never knew so many people would be so pleased to see the back of him, she said with a bitter smile. I assumed she was one of his many ex-lovers. A selection of tawdry music was played, a priest mumbled some insincere pieties, and then a door swung open at the back and they started to wave us through to make way for the next set of mourners. But I couldn't resist one last look at Julian before he was dispatched to the flames. The coffin was in a recessed area with curtains drawn back on either side. The lid had been placed on the table next to it along with a few sprays of flowers, gratifyingly few, I noted. Only one other person had gone up there, and as I approached, I realised it was Aaron. He was peering into the coffin intently, and I wondered what on earth he could be looking at. They'd dressed Julian in a dark blue suit and put a sober tie on him so that he looked perfectly unremarkable. Aaron was so rapt that he didn't seem aware of me next to him, so I followed the direction of his gaze and saw what he was staring at. The first two fingers of Julian's right hand were missing. They'd been severed just below the first knuckle, and although the mortician had done his best, you could tell it was a fairly recent wound. Aaron puffed his cheeks out and then turned to me and shook his head. Who would have thought it, he said, though my dad always was one to bear a grudge. The Circular Saw was written by Elgin Barrett and performed by Joan Walker. Music was by John Woz and technical presentation by Malcolm Blackmore.